Welcome back to the Grief Observed podcast. I'm your host, Brad Morell. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast to tell your story about grief, just contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself, about uh, the person that you've lost, and just a little bit about your grief story. And we'll try to get you on the podcast as soon as possible. Uh, my guest today is Kelly Nielsen. Uh, Kelly and I are working kind of double duty today. We're we're doing a recording for the podcast, obviously, but uh, as well as her YouTube channel. I've always stated I have a face for radio, but uh, today I'm being pushed to the test. So, um, <laughs> well, without further delay, I'm going to bring Kelly on. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. How are yeah, you doing? Thank I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I just love anyone and everyone who's creating a platform for people to share their stories and or just talk about death and grief and loss because it still is like so taboo in our culture. We don't do a good job of talking about it. And I think we don't do a good job of supporting people who are going through it. So I love and applaud all of the folks that are making room for these types of discussion and making a safe place for people to come and share and find hope and encouragement from one another. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate you as well. And uh, I state, you know, the grief is a big enough field that uh, there's a place for all of us, you know, to help others. So um, the one thing that's true is, you know, we all know someone that has passed and we all will pass. Right. So it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's a field that will never uh, go away for sure. So, yeah, it's actually the only thing that's guaranteed. It's the only thing that we all have in common, right? Cause they say the two things that are guaranteed are death and taxes, but babies don't pay taxes. So actually death is the only thing we all have in common. And I find it fascinating that even though it's our guaranteed end we all still are surprised when it happens to people around us. We're, we're shocked and surprised and most often ill-equipped and unprepared to deal with it, which is just, it's just fascinating to, and myself included, right? When it happened to me, I had no idea. I was so unprepared for it. So um, having these conversations and helping people be prepared is awesome. An awesome start. Yeah. Ill-equipped is absolutely spot on. And I think each loss is different, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I've lost one of my best friends uh, 12 years ago, and that was the hardest loss that I've ever dealt with. But I've lost, you know, uh, grandparents, multiple grandparents, um, some that I was close to, some that I didn't know extremely well. Um, I've lost other friends. I lost another really good friend of mine, like a lifetime, probably my longest friend ever a few years ago to uh, just disease. And um, it, it's really difficult, but I look at each death and how, I don't know, the way I approached it was different and uh, and how each one affected me so differently. So um, I don't know, you've, you've experienced quite a bit of loss as well. And uh, can you see where, I guess, each death has been different for you as well? Oh, 100%. There's so many factors that go into how loss affects you, right? So the proximity of the person in your life, how close to you were, were they? How close to them were you? And like how much of your day-to-day -day life 
were they a part of, right? Were you distant? Mm. Were you very close? You know, if it was a someone living in your home, that's going to affect you differently than someone that's a little more far removed. How emotionally close were you? How many, how emotionally and or financially dependent were you on that person? These are all factors. Then the nature of the loss itself adds another layer of complexity. You know, was it an illness? Did you have kind of time to prepare? Was it sudden? Was it tragic? Was it traumatic? All these things play a part as well. And then I think the last piece is where are you at in your life when the loss happens? You know, mm -hmm. how emotionally aware and mature are you? How much work have you done at all, like on yourself or on your ability to deal with really hard things in life? And was this the first really tough thing that happened in your life? Or have you been through some stuff before? All of those things add different variables to the equation, and they're going to make your grieving process different each and every time. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about where a person is in life. And I think that's that's a huge piece, you know, and there's multiple facets to that as well. You know, mm -hmm. where are you financially? Where are you in location? Where are you emotionally in life? There's so many different things that uh, could tell a different story. So let's talk a little bit about some of the losses that you've experienced that kind of gave you this heart for grief. Um, yeah. Where are you yeah. going to start, Kelly? Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. It started with my mom. Um, my mom tragically took her life February 1st of 2017. And when I say that that rocked my world, that is an understatement, you know, that I had lost grandparents, you know, I lost a grandparent suddenly, and I had a grandparent that had stomach cancer. And so we had about six to eight weeks to kind of say our goodbyes and whatever. And those I was sad about those losses and I certainly mourned the loss of my grandparents, but it was nothing, <laughs> nothing compared to uh, getting a phone call from my dad the morning of February 1st saying that my mom was gone. Um, the experience of shock and just, just everything you hear people talk about kind of out of body experience and not, I remember trying to put, I was up in Minnesota at the time. That's where I lived and it was February 1st. So it was cold and I got the call at like six in the morning and I tried putting clothes on and I literally couldn't do it. I couldn't mm. make my brain figure out how to put pants on. And I know that sounds crazy, but that just explains like what, how, when you go into a state of shock, it's just, you're, you can't function, right? It shuts down. Um, the other tough part for me is that I'm a, I'm a person of faith. I came to faith later in life at age 30, and um, I was the first person in my family to come to faith, and I had the honor and privilege of leading my mom to the Lord. Mm. And um, so the fact that she was gone was a crisis of faith for me. I felt that God had let me down. Not only that God had let me down, mm. I actually questioned whether God was real. I was like, this whole faith thing is a joke. Like, I was so angry. I was so confused. And then there were even more, you know, my dad had a, had a part to play in it, which is still here seven years later, not clearly defined what was or wasn't his part. Right. And that's suicide specifically leaves a lot more questions than answers. Yes. That's part of what's so tough for people to deal with is what really happened 
you know, what were they thinking? What could we have done? Should we have seen it coming? Should, you know, a lot of people who lose loved ones to suicide really can get stuck in that place of blaming themselves or feeling like they could have or should have prevented it. And that is a very, unfortunately, I know people who get stuck in that place for years and years. And so again, when we're talking about different losses, that's one of the things that people who experience lose a loved one to suicide, they have to grapple with these other questions and they really have to figure out how to come to a, a resting place or a place of peace about those questions before they're going to be able to move on and any and move forward in any kind of substantial healing. Um, so for me, I was a mess for, a, mm -hmm. for months, for six to nine months. I was just go like a zombie. I described it as being a zombie, just going through the motions of life. Like there was no joy in my life. Every day felt like a chore. The other thing that caught me so off guard when my mom died that I feel like nobody prepared me for is the physical toll, the mm. physical effects of grief. Like, oh my goodness, I couldn't sleep. I was exhausted. I was, I felt like I had the flu again, like my brain. And actually it's a condition, it's called grief brain. And, yes. and what I've learned so much now is about our minds and how they work is that when something like that happens, our brain gets overwhelmed and flooded and our brain jumps around from confusion to anger, all these different mental and emotional states. And that's very disorienting and confusing for our system. Our brain likes predictability. It likes patterns. It likes structure. It likes all these things. And that all goes out the window when you experience, especially sudden and traumatic loss like that. So um, the forgetfulness, the inability to put together sentences, you know, I, I speak for a living. Even back then I was um, working in fundraising at a nonprofit organization and it was my job to speak and present and, and do all this stuff. I actually, I had to take a different position. I had to actually step down. I was in a leadership position and I did not have the capacity to lead anybody. So I had to um, move to a different organization and take kind of a little bit of a lesser role because I just didn't have the capacity. And that's some of the things too, that nobody really prepares you for. And I try to encourage people to take the time and take inventory and, and work with their employer and make sure they have a role and a job that's going to be conducive for their recovery, right? Like we mm -hmm. can't expect ourselves to be a hundred percent after that happens. The analogy I like to use with folks is imagine you're in a really bad car accident or have major surgery. That's what happens to you when you go through, especially sudden traumatic grief and loss. And you cannot, it's unrealistic to expect yourself to be a hundred percent physically, emotionally, intellectually, you're just not there. It's going to take time and it's going to take work. So, uh, and I try to help facilitate conversations between employers and employees because there's a lot of lost income and wages and productivity around grief. And it doesn't have to happen with some conversation and just adjusting schedules, being a bit flexible, or if needed, moving into a different role for a season, all of those things can be helpful. But um, for the person who's grieving, it can feel really disabling. Like you can feel like debilitated and you can feel less than, and you can, it can just add more heaviness when you're grieving. And then you find that you're, you're having a tough time doing your job, you know? Um, so we just want to help support people to get what they need and get the support they need to get back to a place where they are thriving. So, 
sorry, that's a very long-winded way to say this is what got me motivated and passionate about this work because I looked for answers and found none. I'm horrified to say I went to my church. I went to churches in the area looking for help and they had nothing to offer me. They had Mm. nothing to offer me. And the local police station finally invited me to um, a suicide support group. And so I went there and thankfully it was the first place I went where everyone in the room understood what I was going through. So I was so comforted by that because everyone else was kind of horrified, but you know, all my friends and stuff, it was like too big for them and too, too much. So I go to the suicide support group and I was comforted by the fact that everybody knew what I was going through. I was horrified by the fact that they were all in the exact same state that I was in. And this was about six weeks after my mom died and they were just barely surviving. Half of the people in the room couldn't couldn't work at all. They were so de- debilitated that they couldn't work. And for them, it had been months or even years since they lost their loved one. And so I walked out of that room feeling so hopeless, feeling so like, I guess this is what my life is going to be now. I'm just going to be sad and just be trying to get through the days, you know? And that's why I existed in that condition for like six to nine months. And it was awful until I finally, I heard a speaker um, at a conference share her story, amazing story, Immaculate is her name. And she shared about surviving the Rwandan genocide. And she was actually hid in a bathroom for 90 days with eight other women while she heard everyone she'd ever known being massacred all around her. They were actually airing it on the radio. And she shared at this conference, not only how God, like, protected her and she survived that, but how God walked her through a healing process afterwards. And I saw this woman full of joy, full of hope, like her whole family, like a million people were killed in that genocide. So virtually everyone she had ever known was killed. And I saw her speaking on stage. She lives in New York. She has two kids. She was full of life and she shared how God helped heal her so much so that she even went and met the man who killed her family in prison and like forgave him and had a meeting with him. And so for me, it was a life-changing moment for me. That was when the light bulb went off that I don't have to stay like this forever. Like I, if God will do it for her, he'll do it for me. And if she can do it, I can do it. So I decided right then and there I would recover. I didn't know how long it would take. I didn't know where to start. I just knew it was possible. And that was enough, right? So I set my mind up in that conference that I will recover from this. This is not going to take the rest of my life from me. And that's when I started just really learning about neuroscience and about what happens to our minds and bodies when we experience grief and loss. And I just started experimenting, for lack of a better term, like on myself, just trial and error and paying radical attention to myself and my thoughts and learning how to interrupt disruptive thoughts and intentionally and systematically meditating on and rewiring in positive and hopeful and healing thoughts. And that is the foundation of what has now become uh, the process that we use in my business. It's We call it our grief relief process. And it's a five-step framework that helps people go from that place of overwhelm and despair and hopelessness and gives them building blocks and tools to get to process the loss and get to a place where they're loving their life again. And it helps them to design a future that they actually look forward to, not one that they're just having to survive. Yeah. You, you, uh, it's, it's funny. My pastor this past week actually talked about neuroplasticity 
And yep. he said, you know, a lot of people can't even spell that. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the one thing that you spoke of right there is you decided to make a change. I love the word decided because it states that I'm choosing something different for my life. And our mm -hmm. brains can change, right? We we feel like that, okay, you know, I'm 49 or going on 49 soon. And, uh, you know, you think 49 years, 48 years of living a specific way, can I still change? And the answer is yes, you know, but it, mm -hmm. it comes down to that decision, that conscious decision of, I want something different. Yeah. Um, you know, you spoke also about, uh, guilt and I'm curious if you feel like, um, in your opinion, do you feel like guilt with people who, um, are survivors of, uh, someone who is lost to suicide, like, are, do you feel like the guilt is deeper there than someone who just say was in a, a car accident or just passed away from old age? Like, do you feel like guilt is deeper? Well, it, it depends on the person and the situation. Certainly. I think that, um, and suicide guilt plays a bigger part, especially if you were in close proximity to the person. And like, I spoke to my mom the day before this happened, mm. you know, I spoke to her and I, cause it had been a tumultuous time in their household. There was a lot of stuff going on. And I literally said to her that day, mom, what are we going to do to support you? Can, mm -hmm. are you going to go to a counselor? Can we send you to a, a women's, you know, Christian women's group so you can get some more support? Cause Myself and my sister were really her only source of support. And she said, yeah, I think maybe I'm going to check out like a women's group or something. And then the next day she was gone. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do think um, I think that suicide has a bigger propensity for guilt. I also know that specifically parents and children, if you lose a child, parents tend to wrestle with more guilt. Right. Because a, it's unnatural. We're not supposed to outlive our kids. And secondly, I mean, it is our job to a certain extent to keep our kids alive and safe and healthy. And so grappling with whatever the circumstances are, when you lose a child, it's it's far more easy for a parent to feel responsible and have to contend with some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And Kelly, I know uh, we spoke a little bit before we punched record here and mm -hmm. you've lost a child as well. Would you like to speak about that? Yeah. So this is the the second half of my story is that, so I lost my mom so devastated. I began to learn about this neuroplasticity and how our minds work. I started to feel better. I started to get back to myself. And right around that time, a job opportunity opened up in Florida. So I moved down to Florida with my daughter, Piper, and uh, my son, Quentin, who had struggled with addiction um, for several years reached out to me right after we moved down to Florida and said, mom, I just want to be healthy and sober and be in Florida with you and Piper. Can I come join you? And I said, absolutely. And I was hoping and believing that the change of scenery and a new place would be the break that he needed to, to maintain sobriety and be healthy. So we were making preparations for that. I was talking to him every day and he was due to um, drive down in the end of July and his family and friends back up in Minnesota gave him a going away party uh, the weekend of 4th of July, which that weekend happened to be like the 7th and 8th. And so they did a big party for him on the 7th. Um, and then on July 8th, around 5 p.m., I got um, a call from his best friend, Michael, 
asking if I had spoken to Quentin that day. And I said, no, I spoke to him yesterday. You know, why? What's up? And he's like, well, he didn't come home last night. And I mean, Quentin was 20 and he had struggled with addiction. So it wasn't super uncommon for him to not come home. But I knew something was up because his best friend was calling me. Right. So I said, Michael, what's going on? Why are you calling me? And he said somebody had posted on social media and they were just trying to make sense of it. And I said, what did the post say? And he sent me the post and it was a picture of my son and it said, gone too soon, rest in peace. Mm. And when I tell you that all the air spontaneously left my lungs in that moment, like I just had no air. Like I just, and I started, I think I hung up on him. I started hyperventilating. I called my sister and I, I don't even know how she finally understood what I was saying. And we instantly went into calling police, like filing a missing, missing persons report. We were calling hospitals. We were just for, you know, and then his best friend called me back and said they were trying to piece together information and all these rumors were flying around and they found his car and they were literally knocking on doors trying to get answers. And then his friend called me back a little bit later and said he had overdosed. And I instantly thought he was in a hospital somewhere that he had overdosed, but he was, you know, I said, well, where is he? Like, I'll, you know, what hospital is he in? And he said, he said, no, Kelly, he didn't wake up. He didn't wake up. And again, that time it felt like a knife into my stomach. You know, it was awful. Long story short, after about two and a half hours of this, like unsure is he, isn't he kind of thing, the police showed up at his dad's house in Minnesota and confirmed that he had in fact overdosed. He took a, a Xanax pill that was laced with fentanyl and he had passed away early that morning of July 8th. And I'll never forget the thing that will stick with me for the rest of my life. So let's put yourself in my family situation. We had just lost my mom to overdose just a year prior. My daughter Piper was with me when we finally got the, the official news from the police. And as you can imagine, I yelled and screamed and hit the floor and my daughter came up to me and she said, you're not going anywhere, are you, mom? Mm. Like, it still gets me even to this day because her first thought was that I wouldn't be strong enough to handle this and that I would take my own life. And this is why it's so important for people to embrace the work of recovery, because especially in suicide, once a suicide happens in a family, everybody else's risk for suicide goes up tremendously. Yes. And when people don't get help and support to deal with grief adequately, that's when depression, anxiety, addiction, suicide, all those things come from not getting the proper help and support and guidance to deal with these traumas and these losses, right? Like if you don't do a good job of it, it's going to come up another way. It's going to show up another way in an unhealthy way. And it's going to steal your family's, you know, you from your family and their future and all that kind of stuff. So I was so thankful that I was able to tell my daughter, like, I'm not going anywhere. I knew that because what I had learned when my mom passed away, that I could get through this. And then when I started to go through the grieving and mourning process, it was night and day different because I applied the things I learned right away. You know, I didn't have months and months of being lost and overwhelmed. I started doing things right away to focus my mind and process the loss and do the intentional things I knew I needed to do. And it was night and day different. And that's when I really got motivated to do this work because I said, oh my goodness, why is no one talking about this? Why is no one teaching this? Why is no one telling people that 
there's a very important part that you play when it comes to grieving and grief recovery. And there are things that you can do that will make a tremendous difference. And there are things that you might be doing that are that are prolonging the process or keeping you stuck without you knowing it. And so uh, that's this is what I've been doing ever since. You know, I wrote a book about it, created a course, created a coaching company all around it because I'm so passionate about helping people get the help that they need when they are hit with grief and loss. Yeah, I definitely believe that previous loss allows us to uh, be more passionate and uh, and maybe more compassionate to those who are going through this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's some similarities in a loss that I had with, with uh, your son, at least in the fact that I found out on social media that one of my best mm-hmm. friends had passed away. Uh, I don't know if you can see behind me here. I've got some musical instruments. This is my music room. Um, but me and my friend, Chad, we, we had recorded six songs on a particular year and we've been friends since, uh, well, I've been best friends with his brother since kindergarten. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, I went off to the Navy, came back and, uh, Chad and I hooked up and started playing music again. And, uh, anyway, that year we'd written six songs and I'd seen him, I believe on Sunday and, uh, I think it was Tuesday evening. I was laying in bed and I left my laptop next to me or no, it, it, my phone went off is what it was. Um, and it just said, what in the world happened to Chad? And I got up and I'm just like, no, 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 no. I knew, knew something mm-hmm. was not right. And I ran to my living room where my laptop was and it was plastered all over social media. And it's like, you know, I just, just had seen him two days ago, you know, and like you stated, I, I was curled up in the floor, rolling around like a baby, just, I mean, just terrified, like what in the world just happened? And uh, I think it's, you know, in this day and time, it's really hard with social media that uh, there's not a, a proper courtesy anymore of, you know, let's notify the family first and then, you know, throw it out on Facebook or whatever. Um, so it is, it's so hard to find out about a uh, passing like that. It's it, I don't know. It was, I was devastated. Um, Maybe so- there should be a book because a hundred percent, like there needs to be an etiquette. Like it was horrible that it, because it was on social media, it spread like wildfire and we were getting phone calls. You know, his grandparents were getting phone, you know, like nobody, all before we were able to talk to the police. And it's just, and I know, you know, there's good and bad about social media and people, when people are shocked by something they want to share it. And unfortunately the ugly side of social media is that some people just want to be a part of whatever is the exciting story going on. And I hate that that's even a thing, but it's true. And I just, so, and I'm sure if people are listening to this podcast, they don't fall in this camp, but I just would. I just would want to implore and encourage people before you put like, just take a second to think about before you post or share something. If it's, if it's timely, if it's appropriate, if, you know, if, if close family members have sanctioned that or given their thumbs up for that, because we can be really reckless with the things that we share and how we share them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I would like to write a book about grief yeah. as well. And I've always stated I would probably entitle it like after the last casserole was gone, because I, I think there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, it 
that we do in death and in grief that are just wrong. And I think a lot of what we say to people, you know, I, I think people are trying to be helpful in some of the things they say. Uh, but, you know, also as a believer, I feel like there's a lot of things that's not theologically correct that we say to people just mm. to comfort them, you know? Um, but I feel like the support, you know, the, the title of that book would, would be coming from the fact that, uh, you know, I feel like there's a lot of support, you know, front loaded. And then two weeks out, it's like nobody, you know, I would say it's three weeks. It's been my experience three weeks, both times. And it's fun. It's so funny when I interview people on my YouTube channel, it's one of the questions I ask them is like about how long after did everyone else go back to their life? And, you know, and it's two to three weeks. Absolutely. And one of the things that the pastor who led my son's service said you know, we had like 400 people or something in attendance. And he said, this is so great that you guys are all here to like offer your support and comfort the family. But he's like, I want you to take your phone out and put a reminder for three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, because that is when they're going to need your support. And can I tell you out of 400 people, I had three wow. that put reminders and reached back out. And so you know, I, I just try to, and that's ideally when, when I try to connect with people is about a month out after the loss, because that's when you really are, are dealing with, oh my gosh, now how do I, you know, the funeral and all that stuff is over. The casseroles have stopped coming. The people have stopped coming. Now you're left with, how do I live life? How do I face this world without this person? And what does that look like? And where do I even begin? And so that's when we really try to walk people through. And I try to encourage people that if you put consistent effort and energy, you can get a lot of breakthrough and healing within a short period of time. At the same time, that first year is just going to be that first year. You have to get through all the first, you have yes. to get through your first set of holidays. You have to get through the first birthday that they're gone. You, you know, there's going to be some landmines in that first year. So I just want to help set people's expectations. I believe, and we have had clients receive tremendous healing, uh, inside of a year, but they still have to face those, those dates and anniversaries. And we give them tools to be able to do that. So I think part of, um, part of what's helpful for folks is to just have realistic expectations and to not expect too much of, of themselves and from themselves at the same time, to not just succumb to, well, I'm just going to be sad and broken for the rest of your, my life. You know, no, you're not broken for the rest of your life. You've had this thing happen. You're going to have to work out recovering. There are going to be challenging days and times ahead, but you absolutely, you know, can and will get through them and even learn how to make them um, meaningful, you know, for you. It doesn't have to be just drudgery. You know, you speak of brokenness and that's one of mm -hmm. the things I love to talk about in, uh, in my office with clients a lot and uh, not just in grief, but certainly in grief. When you talk about, okay, brokenness, um, one of the things that I like to look at is called Kintsugi or Kintsukuroi. Mm. And yep. for those that uh, I wish I had a piece here that I could show for your, your YouTube, but um, it's, it's pottery and it's the term is a Japanese term that uh, speaks about filling that pottery with gold. And it's, they're highlighting the brokenness as opposed to hiding the brokenness. And I always use the example and um, Kelly, I'm not 
going to assume your age here, but maybe you remember the Brady Bunch. So, of course. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I, I'm really dating our, our lives here, <laughs> but uh, I always think about that episode where the boys were playing basketball in the house, and mom said, "Don't play ball in the house," and they broke mm. that pot. And of course, the boys are over there. You know, they're trying to. Uh, put it back together the way it was and make it unnoticeable, right? With glue or whatever they were using. And then of course, you know, mom, uh, Carol Brady comes over and, and pours water in that pot and it just starts springing leaks everywhere because they did a horrible job of trying to uh, cover up the brokenness. Whereas with this Kentsukuroi or, or Kentsugi, um, it's, it's beautiful pottery, you know? And I think that, too many times in grief, we're trying to cover up that brokenness. And, you know, one of the things that people often ask is, how are you? And and we just immediately say, oh, I'm, I'm okay, right? Mm -hmm. And what's wrong with stating, you know what, I'm falling apart here or I'm having a bad day and I need extra help, you know? So instead of hiding that brokenness, highlight it, you know, and show people. Uh, and, and I think doing what you do, uh, me counseling, I think we're actually highlighting some of our brokenness, uh, showing mm -hmm. that, you know, our lives are not perfect lives. We've gone through some things that hurt, uh, but now we're actually using it for the, the better good of others. So what's, what's some other ways that you feel like you've used, uh, your brokenness, you, you've written books, you've started this business. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that you have helped hundreds of people at this point, if not thousands. Um, I've seen you've got quite a few followers on Facebook, and I'll make sure and, and put that in the show notes as well, just a link to your Facebook page. Um, yeah. You're doing great things. So I don't know. Tell me more about uh, ways you're using that brokenness. Yeah, well, and I want to kind of mince words a little bit because. Sure, sure. I love and I'm familiar with, you know, uh, the the concept of the Japanese. And my point, the way I look at it, though, is that that new piece of artwork, that new vase that has the gold is a new creation. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so I don't want people to focus on, well, this is who I was and I'm now forever broken. No, this is who you were. And you're right. You're never going to be that person again. That's, you know, and. And because this thing happened and you're never going to be that person again, you now are evolving and changing into a new person. And we can honor and celebrate this new person that is being shaped literally because of this bad thing that happened. I like using the caterpillar to butterfly, you mm. know, example that like a caterpillar, when it goes in the cocoon, literally eats itself. It becomes nothing. It becomes goo. Like the old completely is dissolved before the new can take shape and a new thing can be formed. And so for me, I've had broken things, you know, I've had parts and, and sad and bad things that have happened, but I don't even equate to that as broken because those are the things that have formed me into the woman that I am today. And I love this woman and I love the life that I'm leading and I love that I get to be able to help people. And so I don't, look on it negatively, the things that caused me to get here. And I do think it, but I love what you said about, and I don't even think it's brokenness to say when you're sad and you're processing and you're having a tough day, yes, like we shouldn't have to hide that. We should be able to be real and authentic. The other caution though, is to know who you're safe to do that with, you know? And you mentioned about people saying silly things. I have a, a video on YouTube about 
the 10 things not to say to people who are grieving and five mm. helpful alternatives because people who haven't been through it. And I'm, I'm horrified at things that I said before experiencing loss. I yes. said, ignorant. <laughs> I said just the dumbest things to people who had experienced loss before I went through it myself. Um, so you, you don't know until you know, right. And so we should, those of us that are experienced with loss, when people say ignorant things, just give them grace because God bless them. They don't know. They don't, yeah. they haven't been through it and they don't know. Um, I do try to do some talking and speaking to help educate people about what is helpful, what is not so helpful and help people to realize like saying they're in a better place, you know, doesn't really do much for like, I live here. I know Quentin's in heaven. I know for a fact that he's in heaven. I, I live here though. So that doesn't really help me. Uh, you know, uh, I'm off on a tangent with that. So I think for me, I see that God uses all things, even the things that the enemy meant to destroy us. God uses all of those things for our good, for the good of the purposes of those who love him, right? And so if we can let the good come from it, not saying that the thing was good, but the thing can produce good if we will allow it. And me doing the work I'm doing, is that in action, right? And like, so actually when we work with people, our step five in our process is finding a purpose for your pain mm. and literally thinking about and helping people realize how have they been changed for the better because of having gone through this? And then how does that new person want to show up in the world? How does that new person want to give back or do something meaningful or create a beautiful tradition for the legacy of the person that they lost? Like having gone through all this now, what do you want to do with this? How, how do you want to be a help to somebody else? Or what can you do to honor your loved one? And that is really the magic point where people stop looking backwards with sorrow and they start looking forwards with expectation. When we can wrap ourselves around a mission or a cause or some kind of work that is meaningful and contributes and is connected to our loved one, that's what it looks like to move forward and to stay connected to our loved one in a healthy and honoring way instead of being bound to them through sorrow and grieving. I see so many people stay stuck because they feel like that's the only way they can stay connected to their loved one is by being sad and sorrowful and like wallowing in the grief. No, I'm here to tell you either you can stay connected to your loved one and you can honor your loved one and celebrate your loved one in so many other ways. Like it doesn't have to be just attached to grief all the time. Yeah, I think so many times we lose a lot about a person after they pass because we're so focused on the death and the circumstances that surround that as opposed to who they were. And I think mm. we've got to go back and actually celebrate that, you know, who they were as a person, what they meant to me. Um, and can I carry something on from their past into the future? Um, one thing I want to touch back to, and I've, I've probably said this before on a podcast, but it's one of my favorite things. And I was actually supposed to do a grief seminar this uh, weekend, but due to some snow here in Tennessee, it's not going to happen. We're going to reschedule. But um, one of the slides that I have in my seminar is a slide from the show Lost. It's one of my favorite TV shows ever. <laughs> but there's one uh, one part where one of the characters, John, is trying to help Charlie actually get off of drugs. And they come ac across this cocoon out in the mm. forest. And he said, you know, Charlie, I could help this moth out. I, I could open up this cocoon with my knife and let it free. But it's going to be too weak to survive. 
Yep. It's in the struggle that it gains its strength. And mm -hmm. I think that's just a huge thing, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, to think about whenever we're going through our own grief. There's so many times I think that there is something that could uh, temporarily, you know, make us feel better in the grieving process. But I think it's in that struggle where we do gain strength and find that, uh, you know, it goes back to our earlier earlier discussion when you were talking about you decided to change. You know, you decided to figure out how can I be a better person? And mm -hmm. I think that's part of that struggle, you know, that uh, when you get to that point of, okay, if I'm going to decide to get better, if I'm going to change, a lot of times it doesn't, um, it doesn't always include outside help. Maybe it does, but I think you have to do the heavy lifting on your own with grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Uh, one thing that I often say is that trauma is not your fault, but healing is your responsibility. Yes. 100%. Like once you understand that whatever happened to you is now up to you where you go from there. So like, you know, having a victim mentality and saying this thing happened to you, like, isn't going to change anything. I'm, you have to take radical responsibility that how you respond, how you process, how you move forward, 100% is up to you. And yeah, people can come alongside you and equip you and shorten your learning curve, you know, which is what we do in all other areas of life. If you want help with your finances or your fitness or fill in the blank, you go find someone who knows about it and you learn sure. from them. So I'm such, obviously I'm such a huge advocate for coaches and coaching because it can, it can shorten your learning curve. It can help hold you accountable and encourage you to do the work that is necessary because to your point, until you actually face it and do the work, it's not going anywhere. You can distract yourself. You can numb yourself. It's going to stay right beneath the surface. And eventually it's going to come out sideways, right? It's either going to come out as a big ball or it's going to come out in addiction or these other unhealthy things. And so um, I encourage people to embrace the work of recovery as soon as they can, you know, back to like the car accident or surgery analogy. If you had major surgery and if you've ever had surgery, you'll know that in the hospital, one of the first things they want you to do is get up out of bed and Move. start moving. And boy, does it hurt, right? Like that's the last thing we want to do. And I equate it that like the bed is like sympathy and comfort and ooh, sympathy and comfort feels so good. And we would just prefer to lay in that bed and be wrapped up with sympathy and comfort all the days of our lives, you know? And some people make that choice, but the better thing is to get up and embrace like face the pain, learn how to use those muscles again, walk and and force yourself to do that and get help because the quicker you start that work, the faster you're going to get results and you're going to regain those muscles. You know, folks that lay in bed too long, the, their muscles atrophy and they have a tougher time when they do want to re-engage life. So we always try to encourage people to embrace the work of recovery as soon as they're physically possible, as they're able yeah, I tell my clients, even if I can give you the best hour of your week, you have 167 other hours to do something with, right? Right. So I, I think um, you're right. Just move. That that's one of the the keys. Just keep moving. Yeah. Um, I know we're we're closing in on our time here, Kelly, but yeah. I want to give you uh, you know, the final word and just anything that you think we may have missed. And I have a strong feeling that you and I may have to uh, do this again soon. Cause I feel like this, yeah. this hour has absolutely <laughs> just blown by and I just feel like we just scraped the surface. So. Yeah, for sure. I'd be glad to do that. 
For anyone listening, if I can say any one thing, I want you to hear that recovery is possible. It isn't instant and it isn't easy, but it is possible and it is worth it. And I want to encourage you and implore you that you are depending on it, but also your family and all of us are depending on you getting through this and learning how to recover because we all need everybody to show up fully, especially if you're a believer, there's no sitting on the bench. If you're a Christian, right? Like we all need to become who God created us to be and fulfill what he designed us to do. And you're not going to be able to do that if you're debilitated by grief. So please, whether it's my, you know, any organization, just look until you find the tools and resources that work for you and work at it until you're recovered. Um, and we do, and I'm sure we'll put the links below, but we have a free Facebook group where we do teachings and have resources, Grace for Living After Loss on Facebook, I have a YouTube channel, Grace for Living After Loss, a ton of free resources. And then we do have some paid programs as well, like myself and all the coaches. We have about six coaches on our team that all have experienced different type of loss. And they're all just regular people who went through horrendous loss and used the tools that we use with our clients in order to recover and now they teach other people how to do the same. And without exception, you know, we ask people like on a scale of one to 10, where they're at with their grief. One is you're not getting out of bed. 10 is you're fully recovered. Most clients come to us at like a two or a three and everyone without exception leaves between an eight and a 10. I mean, recovery can happen. It can happen in a shorter amount of time than what you think. You just have to have the right set of tools, the right support, and you have to believe it's possible and show up and do the work. But I'm here to tell you, we are without excuse. It absolutely is possible for you. And myself and so many others are here to help you do just that. Thanks again, Kelly. And and uh, I hope I'm not overstepping here, but you said something, maybe a, a little bit of a break for my oh, listeners. Yeah yeah. So. yeah. so one of the options we have for folks is we have a monthly membership program. It's called Grief Relief Nation. And you get a ton of videos and worksheets, a private Facebook group. We do live um, weekly group coaching for everybody that's in that membership. And so we are going to have a special link created for 50% off of that membership for any of your listeners. If they want to plug in at that level, we wanted to give that gift to your listeners. Awesome. So thank you so much. Uh, and, and I hope people do take advantage of that. Um, I think you, you've got a lot of wisdom to share. And like I stated, I, I feel like we just scratched the surface here. Um, uh, but I hope people do seek out your, your business and, and your wisdom and, uh, Thanks again, everybody, for being here on the Grief Observed podcast. I hope you've been blessed by this. And uh, like I stated, I, I hope to bring Kelly back and and uh, maybe have a couple more hours of uh, talking about grief. It, it's not an easy subject to speak about, but uh, there is so much to be learned out there from, from people like Kelly. So, Kelly, thanks again for being here. And uh, thanks, everybody, for being here on the uh, Grief Observed podcast. <laughs>